we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, all about the spiritual gifts. Today I'm going to provide something of an overview of spiritual gifts, and then next week we'll look at the individual gifts themselves. To help us get familiar with this passage, I'm actually going to read the whole of the chapter to us now. 1 Corinthians 12, it starts like this. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to dumb idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Just as a body... Though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one Spirit to drink. And so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body every one of them just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honourable we treat with special honour. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honour to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, their miracles, gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. 
are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret. Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Let me pray briefly. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. It's being preserved for us. And I pray that as we look at it, you would, on one part, you would increase our eagerness and our desire for the spiritual gifts. But I pray also, Lord, as we look at the detail here, that you would give us the boundaries and the insights and the principles that will help us to use these spiritual gifts in a healthy way. Amen. Um, you know, the other day, Caroline, my wife and I, gave a present to our friend Dale. Now, it was actually a present for our daughter, Hannah, but Hannah happens to live near Dale. And we'd been wondering how to get this present to her, and then thankfully, we bumped into Dale and asked him to pass it on for us, which he was happy to do. Now, if you wanted to know, and even if you didn't want to know, uh, we gave Hannah a gluggle jug. A gluggle jug, yeah, it is what it is, really. It's a jug, simply, um, but in its shape, it's, it gluggles as you pour liquid, as you pour water out. It goes gluggle, 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 which is quite amusing for a few minutes. And uh, Hannah remembered her great-grandparents having one of these, and she was quite keen to, to kind of keep it in the family, so to speak. Now, this preaching series is, is going to focus just on three chapters near the end of a, an old letter that was written to a church in Corinth. We call it 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14. Now, this letter was written by Paul, whom the Corinthian church, as well as other churches, regarded as an apostle, which was one of the gifts that was mentioned right at the end of our chapter. Now, in these three chapters, Paul primarily is correcting something that he's concerned about regarding their church meetings. But I think he does so with much grace as well as firmness, but he's also instructive, which is helpful for us today. Now, the particular issue he's correcting is with regard to their use of the spiritual gifts when they gather. Particularly, I think, actually, the gift of tongues. Now, the gift of tongues, if you're unfamiliar with it or are unsure, um, is a God-given ability to speak in a language which is unlearnt and is unintelligible. Uh, you haven't studied it, you don't know what you're saying when you're using it, and most, if not all, of the people hearing it wouldn't necessarily know what you're saying either, unless it's interpreted. Now, I'm not going to go into the details any more than that about the gift, but... Uh, they were using this in, a, in an unhealthy way. You could say they were overusing it, misusing it, and abusing it. They were overusing it really at the expense of other spiritual gifts. They seemed to be misusing it because there was no, if, if any, uh, attempt to try and interpret what people were saying using the gift so that people could understand what was said. There was just this gluggle, gluggle, gluggle noise going on, if you like, in, in the meetings, which may have been a bit quirky at the beginning, but really was no qualitative benefit to anybody. And arguably, they might have been abusing it as well. There seemed to be some evidence of some showing off, getting a bit competitive in its use, not taking turns, and maybe at worst, displaying something demonic. 
Um, since I've been at Everyday Church, Wimbledon, for the last year or so, I've probably been to 100 Sunday meetings. I've been to many life group and prayer settings as well. And I can say, and we should be encouraged by this, that I've not seen evidence of any of those errors. Thankfully, uh, we're not coming from a culture of chaotic, charismatic church. Um, however, I think Paul would still possibly uh, put his apostolic antennae out if he were to be amongst us. And possibly he would encourage us to use the gift more, uh, not less or inappropriately. Um, your situation where you are may be similar to Corinth or more similar to our situation here in London. Now, I'm going to, not going to particularly focus today on the gift of tongues. We will return to it in other weeks. But I think it's helpful for us to understand that's the backdrop concern that Paul has throughout all of these chapters. It explains why he says what he says, when he says it. Uh, and, and as we study the chapter, that context, I trust, will help us to draw out the timeless truths and apply them appropriately into our context, our churches and our cultures. So I've got four headings that I would like to highlight from this chapter, I think hopefully to provide an overview of spiritual gifts. And they are that spiritual gifts always honour Jesus, that they are received by grace, that they're to express diversity within our unity and that they are for the common good. So let's look at each one in turn. Firstly, they always honour Jesus. This is the, the first point that Paul makes on this whole topic at the beginning of chapter 12. He's reminded them that many of the Corinthians, the Corinthian Christians had come from a pagan background. He concludes in verse 3 that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus be cursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You know, Corinth and London, where I am today, have some similarities. You could argue both are vibrant, cosmopolitan, relatively wealthy, pluralistic and sex-obsessed cities. But they do differ on other things. They, they differ particularly in their experience of the spiritual the, and particularly the supernatural phenomena. Um, in Corinth, back in the day, uh, Ecstatic, unintelligible utterances were commonplace in the various religious settings that were uh, around, some of which were of demonic influence. But in London, uh, where I am, um, and in other Western cultures, we, the secularism has really downplayed uh, the supernatural. Supernatural things are largely ignored or rationalised. Now for you, it could be quite different wherever you are in the world. If your culture has an animism or ancestral worship uh, kind of background, heritage, then, then the supernatural may be much more familiar to you, both the good and the bad. Also, as part of the Roman Empire, if someone in Corinth were to say, Jesus is Lord, you'd be pretty certain that they were a born-again believer in Jesus because declaring anybody other than Caesar as Lord was tantamount to political rebellion and therefore very dangerous. I think that explains why back in Romans chapter 10, Paul says that anyone who declares Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that Jesus rose from the dead is saved. 
And I think Paul's applying, if you like, the same test here. Uh, The test he he said we should use for discerning whether someone's saved or not is the same test we should use for discerning whether a contribution in a church meeting is from the Holy Spirit or not. In other words, does it honour Jesus? You see, we don't measure the spiritual gifts and their source by how dramatic or loud or physically demonstrative they are. No, it's not the the froth that matters, but the content that counts. And that's true for the gift of tongues, but it's also true for all the other spiritual gifts. Because you see, the spiritual gifts aren't an end in themselves. They're a means for glorifying and honouring the Lord Jesus Christ. And ironically, in Corinth and through church history and maybe even today at times, what's been designed to lift up the name of Jesus is sometimes used for self-promotion. So when you or I are nudged to bring a contribution, we need to ask ourselves, does this elevate the name of Jesus or am I trying to make a name for myself? Please, I want you to understand, though, that this is about setting healthy boundaries, not a prohibitive barrier for using spiritual gifts. Despite the chaos that Paul found in Corinth, he never told them to stop using spiritual gifts, but to eagerly desire them and use them well and in a healthy way. Why? Because they enable us to honour to lift up, to exalt the name of Jesus in supernatural ways, in ways that are beyond our natural abilities, in ways that only the Holy Spirit is able to inspire. So the second heading then, the spiritual gifts are received by grace. Churches that expect spiritual gifts in their meetings are often referred to as charismatic Now the word charismatic comes from the Greek word charismata, literally meaning things of grace. And that's the original word that Paul uses in verse 4 for the gifts of the Spirit when he says there are different kinds of gifts but the same Spirit distributes them. They're grace gifts. They're love gifts from our Heavenly Father. We don't earn them. We don't deserve them. Yet, as expressions of God's extravagant and unconditional love. They are presents for us, for his children. Now, our Hannah, she didn't have to do or achieve anything for, for us as her parents to want to give her a present for a birthday. Birthday presents are perhaps the most unconditional gift we as humans give to one another. You know, even if my daughter didn't speak to me for a year, even if she went off the rails, may have ended up in prison, I like to think that I'd still send her a birthday present. Verse 7 is interesting. It also refers to spiritual gifts as manifestations of the Spirit. In other words, there are ways in which uh, the tangible evidence of God's presence is made known displaying, demonstrating that God is alive and God is active. And the word translated manifestations, I'm told, literally means 
dancing grace. I love that phrase. And we shouldn't be surprised that, that the spiritual gifts are received by grace because the whole gospel is received by grace. Step one, as we all know, we're saved by grace. We're saved by grace, through faith, not from ourselves. It's a gift of God's that no one can boast. But grace continues. It's not that we were once saved by grace and then we go on and earn everything else by works. Step two, we're spirit-filled by grace. Peter was really clear about that right from the outset. He said we receive the Holy Spirit like we receive forgiveness. It's grace that we apply through faith. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, he says in Acts 2. And it doesn't stop there. Having received the Holy Spirit, being infilled with his presence, we're also spiritually gifted by grace. They are gifts of God's grace. They enable us also to serve others with God's grace. Again, ironically, in Corinth and since uh, what was received by grace has sometimes led to a sense of superiority or inferiority when it comes to the things of the Holy Spirit. How could that be? The gifts are gifts of grace. They're not marks of maturity. God is able to use someone who's been a Christian for five minutes as much as he's able to use someone who's been a Christian for five decades with these spiritual gifts. Therefore, no one can boast. There's absolutely no room for pride or envy, for comparison or competition when it comes to the gifts. Don't get me wrong, maturity, character, they're vital when it comes to the healthy use of spiritual gifts. And we're going to look at that when we get into chapters 13 and 14. So they do, they come with warning signs, hazard signs, but they are received by grace and by grace alone. I think Paul emphasizes this dynamic even more by repeatedly referring to God's sovereignty over who gets what gift and when. So just three verses by way of illustration. Verse 11, the Holy Spirit distributes them, it says, to each one just as he determines. God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. That's verse 18, then verse 24, God has put the body together. You see, the Holy Spirit is a person, not a power, although he is powerful. He is making decisions. He's determining. He's placing. He's putting. He's providing a fresh means of grace every time we gather to worship Jesus. You know, to deny the spiritual gifts, whether on theological or pastoral or practical grounds, is to deny a channel of God's grace to his church. It's like my friend Dale not passing on the birthday present to our Hannah. Perhaps thinking, well, uh, maybe they've given her something that will do her some harm. Or perhaps thinking, well, she's, she's too old now. She's moved away from home. She doesn't need birthday presents in the same way. Or maybe it just feels a bit awkward passing this on, trying to give an explanation, getting involved in the relationship somehow between us and her. You know, when people bring contributions that are inspired by the Spirit in our meetings, we should thank them. We should encourage them, but we should not pedestal people. They are gifts of grace. So let's eagerly desire them. 
let's not piously strive for them. That's not how it works. Let's look at heading number three then. The spiritual gifts express diversity within unity. I think this is Paul's main encouragement to the Corinthian church through all of this prose, through these chapters. He's, he's encouraging, look, come on, pursue the full range of spiritual gifts that are available. I actually like the ESV English translation, which emphasizes that breadth in verse 4 and 6, just with its use of, of words. It says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, it says. But it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Paul also uses the body of Christ metaphor. It features very heavily in this chapter. And often when we use that metaphor, we, we extrapolate a little bit. We talk about all sorts of spectrums of diversity within church life. We might talk about uh, kind of our personality diversity or ethnic diversity or, or demographics of some sort or even our role in church life. And that's all fine and, and true, but Paul's use of it here in 1 Corinthians 12 is exclusively in relation to spiritual gifts and the diversity of them amongst us as a church community. He's pointing out there are many parts of the body, illustrating many gifts of the Spirit. That's what he says in, in verse 14, for example. Some have counted 22 different spiritual gifts in the New Testament, including the nine that are listed here. But really, where do you draw the line? I'd suggest that perhaps the 22 and the 9 here are just categories under which there's a plethora of other various specific gifts. You know, a church with a narrow list of functioning gifts is less like the body of Christ, I think Paul's saying, and more like a freak show. That's his challenge. To the Corinthians, he'd say, look, don't just focus on tongues. To other churches, he may say, look, healing's great, but it's not everything. To us, he would encourage a full breadth. I think Paul illustrates this uh, paradox of, of diversity within unity in another way. He refers to the Godhead. He mentions the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in verses 4 to 6 as being involved in the distribution of the spiritual gifts. Now, the Trinity itself is, is an illustration for us of diversity within unity, is it not? Each member, each person in the Godhead, they function differently, yet they collaborate. They, they work together. They're not in isolation. There's no sense of superiority or inferiority because of their function. They're in the Godhead. They're co-equal. And the same is true for us in the spiritual gift arena. Because again, ironically, the doctrine, the, pact, the practice of spiritual gifts in church history has often resulted in disunity and division. It shouldn't be that, that way. There's no reason for that to be the case. A healthy church is a church that experiences the full array of spiritual gifts. A church where everyone has something and no one has everything. A church where no gift is universal, but no gift is missing. You know, when someone brings a spiritual gift in a meeting, rather than thinking as I do sometimes, oh, I wish I had a gift like that, 
Maybe we should be asking the Holy Spirit, what gift do you want to give me that will complement the other ones you've already given those around me? And lastly, they are for the common good. That's the phrase straight out of verse 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Uh, the translation I read, the NIV, I think actually unhelpfully puts a paragraph break between uh, verses 6 and 7, which leads us to imagine that perhaps Paul's expecting every one of us in the meeting to bring something by way of a spiritual gift every time we're together. But from a practical point of view, that doesn't seem realistic. But actually, the ESV version, which I've already referred to, it strings those two verses together. As one paragraph. So it's clear then that when Paul's talking about each one in verse 7, he's referring to each of the various gifts and service and workings that God has liberally distributed in that moment in time. The point is that whatever the glorious mix of gifts the Spirit has inspired that day, each and every one of them is for the common good. It's for the good of all. It's for the good of the church. You see, I gave Dale the birthday present, but it, it wasn't actually for him. He was, if you like, the delivery driver. He was entrusted to pass it on. He was simply available and open to be used at the time. So it is with spiritual gifts. It's not your gift when God prompts or nudges or, or reveals something to you to share as much as it is our gift to receive. You just happen to be the available delivery driver at the time, open and willing, entrusted to pass it on. So Cara, for, for example, she, she might bring a prophetic word, but it, but it wasn't her who received the manifestation of the Spirit. It was all of us when she brought the word. Alan, for example, he might, he might have a surge of faith that God's going to heal backs today in this moment. Uh, but the, the manifest uh, spirit of God is, is when someone testifies, God's healed my back. The verses 8 to 10, which uh, you can read possibly as a list of spiritual gifts, actually is, I think, more of a hypothetical example of a healthy, charismatic church meeting. Uh, Paul's just by way of example, listed nine different people bringing nine different spiritual gifts, but each of them with the hallmark. They're glorifying Jesus. They're benefiting the whole. It's not a checklist. It's not even a prepared order of service. It's not a priority order of gifts. It's simply an illustration of how a meeting might flow. But there are all sorts of other permutations. You know, ironically, What's been designed for corporate benefit has often fueled an individualistic mindset. Particularly, I think, here in the Western context and around the world, we can very easily become self-focused. Oh, what gifts have I got? Oh, I haven't got a gift to bring. Oh, my, my gift isn't so, so special as someone else's. Chapters 13 and 14, as I say, will help us increasingly become other-focused and less self-focused. 
This series is entitled Eagerly Desire. And I trust that as we've gone through, just at a top line level really, uh, some of the themes of chapter 12, that you've gained some more reasons why you should eagerly desire the spiritual gifts in our gatherings, our big ones and our smaller ones. Why? Because they enhance a number of things. They enhance our worship. We're supernaturally able to glorify and honour Jesus in ways that we wouldn't have been able to otherwise. They enhance our ministry. Ministries that are received by grace, but are also our means of grace to others. We can minister grace to other people direct from God. That's beautiful. They enhance, I believe, also our community, our community life. They enable us to, to enjoy diversity, yet be one. That's, that's something the world doesn't see in any other context. Not really. It's a divine quality that we've been able, through the Spirit, to display in some way. And of course, they also enhance us as church, as in our church life. You know, we're just generally better for it, for the use of spiritual gifts. They do us good, not just in the moment with a sense of God's presence, but, but in our life throughout the week in our mission together, as others come to see and know, wow, God is alive. God is really among you. Let's eagerly desire the spiritual gifts.